The Gospel of Matthew um, is based on the Gospel of Mark, um, as is the Gospel of Luke. So they both take a gospel and rewrite it for um, their own points that they're trying to make. So you know, most people who came across the Gospel of Mark through most of history, if they thought it was good and worthwhile, uh, the way they would spread its message would be uh, maybe to sit down and uh, copy off the book as close to word for word as possible. Uh, maybe if you're an Alexandrian scholar down in Egypt, uh, you would correct some of the grammar, but for the most part, you would pass it along as nearly unchanged as possible. Um, whoever wrote the Gospel of Matthew sat down and said, hmm, I like this quite a bit, and I think it would make a good part of the book I want to write. And so then uh, the uh, author added in sections of uh, Q, which is common to Matthew and Luke, focusing on um, sermons and spoken uh, material as opposed to um, stories from the life of Jesus. Uh, most of those just come right over from uh, Mark. And then uh, stuff from the source called M, which just means special to Matthew. Uh, and it could be one source, it could be several. Uh, so you can imagine the kind of research project you would do. Uh, if I wanted to write a book about the time of Jesus, I would get a lot of books around me and then start uh, writing my own thing. So um, Matthew, compared to the other Gospels, is probably more Jewish than the others, uh, possibly for a Jewish audience uh, as the primary, or a Jewish Christian audience uh, as the primary audience. Um, and traditionally, the external um, tradition about, that means external means external to the book itself. The external uh, tradition about Matthew is that it was written by Matthew the publican who um, took taxes on behalf of Rome and then left it all behind to follow Jesus. Um, internally, there's nothing in the book that says this is by Matthew. Um, but the person does seem to be uh, pretty Jewish and pretty familiar with uh, Jewish um, oh, culture. Uh, for instance, we start off in chapter 1. Mark just kind of bang you right at the uh, uh, beginning of the ministry of Jesus <coughs> um, as he goes out to get baptized. Here we have a narrative of the um, birth of Jesus, and before that we have a genealogy. Now, genealogy is the uh, section I would always skip when I was trying to read through a text, but the Genealogy that Matthew gives is important for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, he wants to emphasize that Jesus is the son of David. Um, so the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So son of Abraham simply means uh, Jewish. Uh, son of David uh, means the Messiah that they've been waiting for, the anointed one, the Christos, the Messiah. Um, 
And so we pick up with Abraham and go down to David. And then David until Babylon, and then Babylon until the birth of Christ. And all of these, um, he lists 14 names in each section. Now, if you go back and look at Old Testament genealogies, you'll notice he's leaving out a lot. And you can do that. You can say, um, Jesus is the son of David and leave out all the ones in between. So he's doing a lot of that. But they come out to 14. And um, the reason for 14 generations has to do with Hebrew numerology. So if you have, oops, hold on, everything's falling. Okay, so I think I've gotten everything under control for the moment. Um, at this point in the evolution of written Hebrew, there are no vowels yet. That will come later. I think the Masoretes invent the pointing. Um, and the vowels look different from the consonants because at first Hebrew was a consonant-only language. And then, um, you know, after the Greeks invented vowels, the uh, Hebrews saw the utility of them and wanted to add them in, but you couldn't change the sacred text, um, which was the consonants. And so they developed a system of small dots to put around the consonants rather than letters of equal size as we have in English. So the three letters in David are Daleth, Hey, Daleth, or DVD. And in Hebrew numerology, the Daleth is the fourth letter of the alphabet, the He is the sixth letter, and the Daleth is again the fourth letter. Boy, I can't talk and write at the same time. So you had four plus six plus four that comes out to the number 14. So David's number is the number 14. So this carefully uh, constructed genealogy, uh, the point of it is that Jesus is uh, the new David. Uh, this has to do with typology. The idea that something in an earlier time corresponds to something in our time, or that something in the earthly realm corresponds to something in the heavenly realm. Uh, you see both of this carried out uh, to its ultimate degree in the book of Hebrews. But you get quite a bit of it in uh, the rest of the New Testament as well, and certainly a lot, a lot of it in Matthew, who is... Um, you know, at this point saying that Jesus is the new David. At another point, he'll be saying that Jesus is the new Moses, etc. The new Isaiah. Um, and if you read through this, we aren't going to read it word for word, but um, we notice that, um, that most of the people in the genealogy are men. But there are a few women. So the genealogy 
um, mostly as guys, as genealogies of the time uh, were wont to be, and kind of ignores half of that equation, but um, Matthew does include five women in the genealogy of Jesus. Of course, um, there's Mary, his mother, but then there are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And uh, what these four women, uh, besides Mary, are known for is their sexual forwardness, if you will. Tamar um, needed a son. Her husband died. Um, I think the brother died as well, and so nobody wanted to have anything to do with her. Uh, so she pretended to be a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law um, and got a son that way. So she wasn't a prostitute, but she pretended to be one to seduce her father-in-law in order to get pregnant, which is kind of out there. Uh, Rahab was a harlot who sided with the uh, Israelites when they were invading uh, Jericho. And then Ruth was from Moab. She was a widow. And in order to uh, get the relative to marry her, um, Boaz was her husband's, uh, dead husband's relative. And uh, so uh, once he spotted her, she kept an eye on him. And when he was sleeping outside, she snuck into bed with him. Again, kind of forward, although they got married, lived happily ever after. Um, the uh, Bathsheba is probably the most scandalous one because her husband Uriah wound up dead as part of her affair with David. So what Matthew is saying is that um, God can use all these people um, and they can be part of his plan, that um, you don't have to be outcast just because there's sin somewhere. And so when Mary comes into question, as she does, because she's a virgin uh, who's pregnant doesn't happen all that often. And so um, it says that uh, Joseph didn't want to make her a public example, but was going to divorce her quietly. Um, and then was told, okay, take Mary as your wife. So um, Mary, along with these others, could come in for a public uh you know, disapproval, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Um, so it's very Jewish. It's also uh, very gospel, uh, you know, very, uh, the gospel is very open to people that normally um, the good people, like uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, would look down upon. So Matthew has one of the two nativity stories. The other is Luke. And if you examine these side by side in your parallel, in your synopsis, you'll notice they're very different stories. Um, and the tendency is to try to string them together and harmonize them, but let's just uh, take each one for what it's worth. Um, in Matthew, the wise men come uh, tip off Herod that tip off Herod that uh, the king of the Jews has been born, and uh, Herod says, "Well, tell me where he is. I want to worship too." Now, Herod, of course, had no 
intention of letting a rival live. Um, Herod was particularly paranoid, especially about anybody that was threatening to displace him. Um, He had a bunch of sons, um, but he kept having them killed because he was worried either they were really involved in plots or he was paranoid involved in plots. If you watch the the way things happen in um, North Korea... Um, you kind of get the idea of what it would be like to be in the family of Herod. And because of his status as a client kingdom, every time he wanted to condemn one of his sons, he would have to send off to Rome to get permission. And he did not want Rome to be unhappy with him. So he was very meticulous about that to the point that at one point Augustus said, I would rather be Herod's hus than his huias. Uh, which is uh, Greek for I would rather be his pig than his son, because his pig probably has a pretty good chance of not being eaten. Uh, But his son, man, tough to be a son of Herod. So um, anyway, he wouldn't think anything about trying to kill uh, a rival like uh, the baby Jesus, um, even though there's no way he would be alive when the baby got grown or anything. He's paranoid. He's going to go after him. Uh, so they fly down to, or flee, uh, down to Egypt where they stay until the death of Herod. Um, then we get back on track, uh, parallel with um, Mark, with uh, Jesus going out to be baptized by John the Baptist. Um, the temptation, very interesting um, that uh, in the Gospel of Mark, he just says that Jesus was tempted. But if you look in your um, parallels, uh, in your synopsis, if you look at page 39 of your synopsis, you can compare Matthew 4, 1 through 11, with Luke 4, 1 through 13. And these are very close parallels. So uh, this is um, from what we would say was the uh, source in Q. Um, I guess it's an exception to the most of it being teaching. This is, you know, a story from the life of, and it elaborates on what exactly the temptations were. According to Matthew, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was famished. The tempter came to him. Um And said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be bread. But he answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, um... According to Aristotle, the government, whatever type of government you have, it becomes corrupt when you stop seeking the good of the common, you know, of the community as a whole, and start using your power to seek your own good. So Jesus um, seems to be concerned that he not use his power simply to satisfy his appetite, 
Then we get into the next temptation. Uh, the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning thee. Um, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So here's the sin of presumption, or uh, trying to force God's hand into uh, performing a miracle. And it would have been spectacular, and would have matched what some people were looking for in the form of a Messiah, somebody that would maybe float down from heaven, um, and lead them, but um, and also notice that uh, he's using the Bible against the Bible. So uh, the tempter is using the Bible to tempt people. You can misuse the Bible. And then finally, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Um, so a temptation to um, sell out in order to gain power, and certainly anybody that's familiar with politics who's familiar with this. Um, now, if you compare this to Luke, uh, the initial... Um, or the Luke order is the bread to start with. So they're both the same on the bread. And almost, you know, the word's very close together too. But then in Luke, the second temptation is the high place uh, where he's going to throw himself down. And then it's the third temptation that is in, uh, I mean, uh, the high place to uh, worship Satan, uh, a, a mountain. And then the third place is in the temple. And so, uh, one of, either Matthew or Luke has changed the order of the temptations. And uh, Matthew's temptation ends on a mountain. And you'll find through the rest of the book of Matthew that uh, the mountaintop is a place of revelation for him. And that Jesus over and over will be on other mountaintops. Um, in Mark, I guess the only one is um, for transfiguration. But Matthew adds in these other mountain experiences. Luke, on the other hand, um, he has a real focus on the temple if you look at the geography of his gospel, uh, the opening scene is in the temple. The closing scene of the Gospel of Luke is in the temple. The opening scene of the book of Acts is in the temple. And the closing scene in the book of Acts is the city of Rome. Uh, so you see the gospel spreading uh, starting uh, with this uh, focus on the temple, but uh, jumping out and spreading around the world until it reaches even Rome. Um, now, so which one changed it? My theory, and I just came up with this, uh, <laughs> so um, 
I've been looking at this for a long time and just now came up with this theory. And I haven't, I, I may have heard it somewhere else, I'm not sure. But because the tempter, or Satan, if you will, tempted by the devil, um, he quotes the Bible in the section where Jesus is on the pinnacle of the temple. It seems like uh, in storytelling logic, uh, Jesus has twice used the Bible to thwart the devil, and then finally the devil starts quoting the Bible back to Jesus. So it's logical, story logic, that the third temptation would be the one where he quotes the Bible, because then all of a sudden he doesn't quote the Bible again. So, you know, why did he do it in the middle one? Um, and so I think the Luke order is the original order and that Matthew has swapped it around. But that's my own th- I literally don't remember seeing that theory anywhere else. So <laughs> take it for what you will. So, um... Another thing you find a lot of in Matthew is fulfillment scriptures. So, um, when Jesus heard that John was cast into prison, this is verse 12 of chapter 4, he departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast, in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but the way of the sea, Beyond Jordan, Galilee, and the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw a great light, and to them which sat in the region of shadow, uh, in shadow of death, light is sprung up. And from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You certainly wouldn't expect, this is old Israel, uh, the part of the northern kingdom that had gotten swept away earlier, and... Um, under the Maccabeans had been brought back under the umbrella of um, Judaism, but was still regarded as rather suspicious, and you certainly wouldn't expect your Messiah to come from there. They're expecting him to come from Bethlehem. Okay, so um, as we move forward, there are these great speeches in the Gospel of Matthew. The first is the Sermon on the Mount. And the point, or one of the points of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is giving the update to the Torah. Jesus here is the new Moses. Um, And as the new Moses, he's giving the new Torah, um, which... Far from under you know um, diluting the message of the Old Testament, intensifies it quite a bit. Um, well, we'll get there in a moment. First, uh, the Beatitudes, which are very similar in Luke's Sermon on the Plain. So, this is one of those sections that scholars think is from uh, Q, part of the teaching of Jesus, and then. Luke and Matthew have to decide where to put it. And Matthew puts his version in chapter 5, where he takes aside, you know, goes aside from what um, what 
Mark was saying, and okay, here we're going to drop in a sermon. Um, the blessings or the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think in Luke it's just poor. So, um, Matthew's spiritualizing it some. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And uh, what these have to do with is called eschatological reversal. Eschatology, uh, eschaton is last in Greek. Eschatology is the uh, uh, doctrine of last things. What's going to happen at the end of time? So, uh, what is going to happen at the end of time? Um, the people who are doing badly now will have their lives fixed. Look in the Old Testament. There's a lot of um, this idea that you're going to get what you deserve here and now. So, if uh, Job is suffering here and now, it's because he did something wrong here and now. And as the book of Job points up, that's not a very satisfactory explanation. Sometimes, yes, I can see where I'm being punished for something I did wrong. This is a natural consequence for my action. But other times, things seem out of whack. And telling me that I deserve it, even though I don't know I deserve it, doesn't really make things better. So um, then there's this doctrine that develops that there will be an afterlife. And in that afterlife, we'll get our true reward or punishment. And so all these people that are having terrible times now are going to be comforted, going to inherit the earth. Uh, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And you can see this also as a um, spiritualization, just, you know, as opposed to those who hunger and thirst for food, who shall also be filled. Uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are they pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called, shall be called the children of God. Uh, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when we revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So here's another idea about suffering. Not suffering because you're evil, but be suffering because you're good. That people actually hate you because you're so awesome. Um, verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Here's a basic concept that establishes the continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. Um, Marcion, you know, this kind of verse uh, Marcion would not accept. He thought that uh, the Old was 
set up by some evil God and that the good God sent his son Jesus to fix all that. And so he sees um, the Old Testament and New Testament basically at war with each other. But Jesus is saying, no, there's a deep continuity. I'm not come to negate all the law and the prophets, the two two of the three sections of the um, Old of this Hebrew scriptures, but rather to fulfill them. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot and one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Um... For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So uh, this sets up a two possibilities. One, that you've really got to double down and triple down on what the Pharisees and scribes are doing and do it even more than they are. Or two, you need another way to... Uh, get to heaven than their way, a way that's superior. Um, so now we get into the new Torah, the Messianic Torah. Ye have heard it that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. And whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And who shall say and, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whoever, whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thy bring thy gift to the altar and their remembrance that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift." Agree, agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast in the prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. So here is what the Old Testament says don't kill. Here's what I say. You need to have a whole relationship with your people around you, your brother, your sister, your enemy, um, in order to have a whole relationship with God. So don't kill. I say don't even hate. Don't even be angry. Um, So this is not lowering the bar and making it easier to be a Christian than it is to be a Um, was to be a Jew in the Old Testament. It's much, much harder. I can do a lot before I kill somebody. Um, So this is, um, you know, kind of what we started learning in the book of Genesis. We are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. Um, okay, second uh, new law. You have heard it that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. Um, so here is, again, it's a lot easier not to commit adultery than it is not to lust at all. And if you've committed adultery in your heart, you know, the antinomians would say, well, why not go ahead and, uh, you know, if I'm getting punished for it anyway, I may as well have the fun. I don't think that's what he meant. But he is looking for an inner transformation, not just outer um, compliance with the law. Whoever shall put his wife away, let him give her a writing of divorcement. That's the, the old saying. But I say unto you that whoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. So, uh, no divorce. Once again, making life much, much harder for the Christian. Um, so, here we go with another um you heard this, now I say, uh, 33, again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by thine head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. Well, that was then. Uh, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is uh, more than these cometh of evil. So he's saying, uh, you know, keep your word, and then people will trust you. All the fancy swearing in the world won't make you keep your word. That's something that comes from your character. So he said just, um, you know, have the character, and then people will understand that that's you and not a lie. Um, let's see. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him take thy cloak also. Whosoever compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. So, again, making it much harder. Um, in the Old Testament... They had the law of lex talionis, the law of retaliation, that you take vengeance equal to the harm that was done to you. So it is a limit. Somebody pokes my eye out, I want to kill them. But the law limits me to an eye for an eye. Jesus is saying, don't even do that. Um, so the Messianic Torah, again, harder than the other one, harder than the uh, Mo Moses Torah. Verse 43, you have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them which hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. 
that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love them that love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? If you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect as your Father which art in heaven is also perfect. Uh, which is in heaven is perfect. So, um, yeah, this is another tough one. Um, we tend to hate our enemies, and it's hard to show them love. Um, but Jesus is saying not only that's the standard for us, but that's also the standard for, that God holds himself to. Um, then he talks about uh, doing your alms. It's basically this next section, verse uh, chapter six, is talking about public piety and public reward. Um, if I am giving in order for people to see me give, then that's the reward I get: is the approval of people who see me give. It's a very public ceremony. Uh, um, so in this uh, public ceremony of ceremonial giving, you go up and you make sure everybody notices just how much you give. It's, it's not really a spiritual thing. You are acting spiritual in order to get public approval for this public spirituality. And, and Jesus says, that's not real. It's hypocritical. It's an act. He calls these, um, at least the Greek translation is hypocrites. And these are, the word means a play actor. So you're play acting at being devout to God by showboating how generous you are. Of course, in our own popular popularly conceived uh, spirituality in our country, we've kind of done away with that because, uh, you know, poor people are that way because uh, God hates them. <laughs> They've sinned somehow, and therefore we bear no responsibility to them. So no need to pretend to be concerned about them or to give to them. I'm not sh- I don't think that's what he meant. He also uh, says the same thing about the Christian's prayer life, um, that uh, his followers are not to make a um, big uh, show of their prayers, but instead should pray in private, not out on the street corner where everybody can hear them. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer. Uh, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So here we're praying for basic needs, also for forgiveness, but also that we will show forgiveness. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I think that was um, a pious prayer that was added in the margin and later got brought over into the um, the received text, but modern critical texts don't have that. Um, he said, uh, if you're fasting, don't go around 
looking like you're fasting, uh, just fast. Um, again, uh, spirituality should be who you are, not what you, the show that you put on for other people to see. He also uh, exhorts us not to worry. It says, uh, God takes care of the fowls of the air, uh, for they sow not, neither do they reap, neither do they gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father, Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? So uh, Jesus will take care of it. Um, he also tells us to judge not that we be not judged. So um, a lot of hard stuff in this uh in this sermon on the mount stuff that most of us don't want to hear uh give that not give not that which is holy unto the dogs neither cast ye your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you um so i guess he's uh basically telling us um don't waste our good material on people that aren't going to listen. You can tell pretty quickly where people are going to listen or not. Um, he finishes the sermon by comparing people who listen to his words and follow them. He says they're like a wise men which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened to a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, as it, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So a sturdy foundation will survive the trials to come, but a foundation of sand, which people who don't listen to me have, uh, that house will not. Well, after this, we get back into your basic um, uh, similar material to Mark with similar points. If um, if if you don't change something, then you like it the way it is, then you're making pretty much the same point the original author was. So uh, let's look on to the next um, sermon, which we have, and that's in uh, chapter 10. And I believe Mark has this, but without the sermon. Mark Okay, so um his um his address now is to the twelve and here are the names of the twelve. Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, Lebaeus, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, 
and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So um, he sends them out. At this point, the preaching is strictly um, to go to uh, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is, we're not going out to the Gentiles yet. So the message is uh, for within. Not only do you preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but also heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out the devils, freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor script nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, uh, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet stays, for the workman is worthy of his meat. So they're going to practice radical poverty. And um, you find this in Catholicism, the mendicant brothers, people that beg. Um, For some reason, I'm not quite sure why, uh, Protestantism has repudiated the godliness of poverty. uh, And um, this radical poverty that, you know, is a way of showing your spirituality, of being spiritual. I'm not going to uh, stack up lots of goods. I'm going to depend upon God to supply me. And for some reason, um, my uh, Protestant um, brothers and sisters have kind of repudiated that. And poverty is a sign of a lack of spirituality for some reason. So uh, this is not only, um, you know, even though it's addressed to the disciples, it's also got a secondary uh, uh, readership among, or, you know, audience among the people reading this. And these are people later on who are reading it as they go out into the world and preach as well, this time to everybody. Um, Verse 16, Befold, I send you forth as a sheep in the midst of wolves, Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in the same hour what ye shall speak. Uh, for it is not that ye speak, but the spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver brother up to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents. So he's looking forward, and all, and ye shall be hated for all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. So um, he's looking forward to a time later when there will be persecution. And so this is an address, Matthew is, um, probably some persecution going on in his time. And so um, he's making sure that these words will apply to his readers as well as to um, the original disciples. And in the time of persecution, remember that people that deny Jesus before men, he will divide, um, deny before his Father, which is in heaven. <laughs> so Rome, when they they didn't always persecute Christians, um, 
it was weird that a lot of the times it's the better governments of Rome that would actually persecute because the more corrupt ones just didn't care enough. Um, but the good government wants to maintain the good graces of uh, the Roman gods, pantheon, so uh, they might get involved with some persecution along the way. And generally speaking, uh, they didn't want to persecute people, um, what they would do was give them every opportunity not to get persecuted. So if you um, would just say that you were not a Christian, if you would carry out the sacrifice to the gods, they would take your word for it. So it was a kind of a don't ask, don't tell situation. If um, you know, I'm not going to go looking for Christians. If somebody gets denounced as a Christian, then I'll go to them and give them the opportunity not to be. And many, many Christians, um, you know, went along with that. They weren't willing to um, be jailed or uh, stripped of their possessions or even killed. Um, and so they would, they would uh, apostatize. They would swear that they had nothing to do with Christ, uh, take whatever... Uh, steps they were supposed to, and then go back and be free. They could be home that afternoon. Uh, other Christians welcomed the idea of martyrdom. Origen's father was being uh, put to death for his Christianity, and he wanted to die with his dad. He was a teenage boy, and you know, teenage boys can be dramatic sometimes, and he was going to go out and confess that he too was a Christian, even though nobody was looking for him and get himself killed, uh, but his mother thwarted his plan by hiding his clothes. <laughs> he was willing to die for Christ, but he wasn't going to do it naked. Um, so uh, as a result, we have the works of origin. Well, how do we get off on that? Um, So the second discourse of Christ is called the um, mich uh, the missionary discourse or the mission discourse, and um, it you know it's setting them up to go out and as I said preach, but also that future generations would be able to take this passage as well and apply it to them. Uh, as we look to the third discourse. This is the one, it's a parabolic discourse, um, parables about the kingdom of heaven. And includes the parable of the sower, the tares, the mustard seed, the leaven, um, also the hidden treasure, the pearl, and drawing the net. But Many of these are in uh, the book of Mark, and I think we've talked about them. Let's see which ones are unique to Matthew. So the parable of the sower is a parable of the triple tradition, as they call it. It's one that's in Mark, which then gets brought over into Matthew and Luke. And it's very similar in meaning to... Um, in Matthew to Mark and Luke. 
the interpretation is similar. He who has ears to hear. Uh, well, Matthew moved that. Yeah. So the parable of the tares on page 109 of your um, synopsis is unique to Matthew. Let's see, Matthew 13, 24. Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while the man slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? For whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? He said, Nay, lest why ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together the first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat unto my barn. So this is, again, a, um, a look at uh, eschatology, doctrine of last things. What's happening now is that we look around and we see a world that's mixed. There are good people, there are bad people, there are godly people, there are ungodly. Um, and why not judge now? Why do we not see the rewards and punishments right now? And in order to punish the wicked right now, it would disrupt the good in order to get rid of the tares you would have to tear up the wheat as well and you would you know destroy destroy all of it the, the roots are interlaced and so uh, this um, judgment that's coming has to be at the end at the harvest so the harvest becomes symbolic for the last judgment uh, this one's pretty close to an allegory um, some some of these uh, parables aren't particularly allegorical. They have one main point, but this one seems almost point by point. The wheat equal the good Christian. The tare equal everybody else who's not like us. Um, the farmer is God. The enemy is the devil. The harvest is uh, the return of Jesus, uh, the apocalypse, and the last judgment um, the barn is equal to heaven where the wheat will go and the tare will be uh, thrown into the fiery pits of hell, which is the judgment of uh, non-Christians. So yeah, this, one, this one's a good candidate for an allegory. Okay, the mustard seed is triple tradition. Um... The parable of the leaven, Matthew thirteen thirty-three, told them an, another parable, 
The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until all the dough had risen. So um, what leaven does is make something, take something that starts small and makes it a lot bigger. Um, And so the kingdom of heaven starts small, like the mustard seed, like a little bit of leaven, but then as it mixes through the flour, expands, and the whole mass grows bigger. So uh, Christianity will grow along the way, I think is what he's saying. Oh yeah, the parable of the tares. We have the explanation in 3, 36 through 43, but it is the pretty much what we already talked about. It's the um, um, the allegory that we were talking about before. Uh, Matthew 13, the hidden treasure and the pearl. The kingdom of heaven, let's see, 13 crud. Uh, 13.44 Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field, in which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Um, and then the kingdom of heaven is like a net which was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore, sat down, gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So uh, the treasure, the kingdom of God is a treasure that you sacrifice everything else to get, whether it's the treasure in the field or the pearl. The other thing is more like... Um, Again, these things that are mixed together here and now will be separated in the end. Um, The angels shall come forth at the end of the world, sever the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. Um... The next discourse is on uh, how it's about relations within the church. Um, Discourse on the church, yeah. And first he starts by saying how you come in to his group. He said, um, except you be converted and become his little children. This is uh, chapter 18, I think, verse 3. Sorry about that. 18.3. Except you be converted and become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So he talks about stumbling blocks and who are the little ones, um, maybe new Christians, maybe little, literal little ones. But um, 
there's this idea that you have to have kind of a the simplicity of a child in order to grasp the kingdom of heaven and oftentimes as adults we get too convoluted in the way we look at things but um then he says um once you become christian as you grow you need to take care of the little ones about you then he gets into a church discipline area uh, verse 15, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained a brother. So step one in this, and you can see this being used by the early church as well, that this uh, isn't simply from Jesus to his disciples, but it's also from Matthew to the church. Uh, so take it one-on-one -on -one first. If he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established so let's get a committee let's say of uh, fellow christians to go with you and try to uh, parse this out And then if the person still won't listen, it says, uh, if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man or a publican. Boy, they talk about publicans a lot. Maybe, maybe it is by Matthew the publican. Um, and then he talks about forgiveness within the church in a parable the parable of the unmerciful debtor. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And then when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents, which is an astronomical amount of money. It's like saying $1 billion. But for as much as he had not to pay, the Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of the servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him and the debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him an hundred pence, which is like a hundred bucks, let's say, or, you know, ten dollars. It's not much. Um... And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And the fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. But he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay his debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt. Because thou desirest me, shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do unto you, if from your hearts for ye forgive not every one 
his brother their trespasses. So, um, yeah, this is the argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has forgiven me all the stuff that he has forgiven me for all the, every sin I've ever committed in all my life, then I find somebody that's done a little something to me, but I can't forgive them, then that cuts off forgiveness from God. How can I expect God to forgive me when I am so unforgiving to everybody else? So that's the discourse on the church. Let's move to the last discourse. Since these are special, another mountain. This is uh, the Mount of Olives discourse, 23, 24, and 25. Uh, Chapter 23, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, And therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do ye not after their works, for they say, and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them upon men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do, for to be seen by men, they make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the markets to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be ye not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humble himself shall be exalted. So, there is a tendency on the part of a particular kind of religious mind, and it's not limited to scribes and Pharisees. We see it all the time. People that make all kinds of demands of others that their lives be so righteous, but then they themselves don't bother with all that. Um, they're very forgiving to themselves and not so much to others. Also, this desire for religious status, status based on your religious life, and saying we shouldn't, we should basically have an equality within the church and not a hierarchy. And then he, uh, has his uh, denunciations of the scribes and Pharisees. We won't do all of these. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, nor suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make a long prayer, therefore shall receive the greater damnation. So, here are a list of what he sees as um, hypocrisies on the part of his enemies. And remember, the one uh, other 
group of Jewish origin that survived the destruction of the temple in AD 70 uh, were the scribes and Pharisees. The, um, the synagogue, they, their base was in the synagogue, and so they held the synagogues all over the empire, not just in Palestine. And so there's a continuing competition between the church and the synagogue to be the proper heir to Judaism. So he calls them whitened sepulchres, which is um, you've whitewashed a tomb, but on the inside are dead bones. And so uh, you've made a pretense of this show of religion, but on the inside is all this evil that hasn't been touched by your uh, religiosity. In uh, chapter 24, he starts uh, talking about the destruction of the temple and warns that there will be many people coming that say that they are the Christ. Um, Don't be fooled. There are lots of people out there that like to predict the end of the world. Um, And so far, they've always been wrong. Um, Maybe it ended and nobody noticed. (laughs) Um, so he warns against the, uh, you know, following these false prophets, which, you know, is kind of what got Jerusalem destroyed, was these uh, messianic visions that they could kick out the Romans. And, uh, he's saying, don't go along with this kind of stuff. And he continues with his... Um, apocalyptic um, imagery in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of earth mourn, and they that see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, one of, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and put it forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when she have seen all these things, know that the, it is near even at the doors. Um, So he warns us that people will be doing what people do right up until the end. Basically, the idea is to be ready. So the the servant doesn't know when the Lord's showing up, so better be doing what you're supposed to. Uh, I could have used that when I was a high school student working at the Piggly Wiggly, and uh, when the uh, bosses would go off to lunch, uh, work didn't exactly stop, but it slowed down a great deal. <laughs> and you do not want to be sitting on the uh, checkout aisle, um, you know, where, where you put your groceries to be checked out when the boss comes walking in the door. I can tell you that from experience. 
then we get into some parables about the end. Um, chapter 25, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest you be not enough for us and you, but rather go to them that sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they were ready. They that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. So the idea is that you have to be ready because you never know. Um, the next sec, uh, parable is the parable of the talents. And uh, most of us are familiar with this um, he gave, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And he gave one five talents, another two, and another one, to each man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. So he comes back, one servant has taken the five talents and made them into ten. And the second servant has taken the two talents and made them into four the last servant buried his the talent that he was given the the money that he was given in the ground and it's there but it hasn't increased and so he hasn't used the opportunities that he was given in order to um bring a profit to his master so he's saying you know for those of us who follow god god expects a return on his investment Now, this last um, this last parable is the parable of the um, sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations... And shall be separated them one from another, as a shepherd divided his sheep from the goats. So you can imagine, uh, you know, goats and sheep mingling during the day to, um, to, to eat the grass, you know, to graze. And then at night they're separated into separate pens. And so this would be very easy uh, if you imagine a field full of white sheep and black goats. Uh, you go here, you go there. Um, he's saying that is the way, once again, like the wheat and the tares, we're mixed until the final judgment when we're separated out and judged according to um, our merits in the eyes of uh, Christ. So what is going to be the criteria what are the criteria 
uh, for deciding whether one's a sheep or one's a goat. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? When saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Um, I see a lot of people who parade around about how Christian they are and how much God loves them and can't stand me. And yet their whole philosophy of life is that of a goat. The, you know, their whole outlook is, uh, you know, if you're foreign, we want to get rid of you. Uh, illegals, let's kick them out. That doesn't sound like this. Uh, this the stranger was to be uh, shown hospitality. Uh, you know, if somebody's hungry, they deserve to be hungry. If somebody's thirsty, they deserve to be thirsty. If somebody's sick, we need to close their hospital. Um, we have entire political philosophies based upon being a goat. And the people that are most attracted to them are the ones that say they are sheep. And I do not understand this. I don't know how you work this out in your head. Um, okay, so that's the last of the last of the uh, um, of the discourses. Now, uh, again, uh, as we get into the death and resurrection of Christ, it parallels largely Mark, although at the end. After Mark 8, it departs quite a bit because, um, um, because um, either it ended there originally or it got cut off so early that the uh, original is n no more. So uh, when we get to the resurrection, let's see. Uh, behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Oh, yeah. Um, here we have um, it's kind of a apologetics uh, and by the way, the term apologetics is a um, theological term. It means defense. Uh, the word apologia originally meant defense. And uh, how do you defend yourself when you're guilty? You apologize. Oh, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. But in, um, in uh, Christianity, apologetics means never having to say you're sorry for what you believe. And so uh, how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, this is a Matthean Edition in verse uh, chapter 27, verse 62. The chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, uh, Sir, we remember the deceiver said, 
while he was yet alive after three days, I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away. So here we have the guards, uh, Roman guard, being put on the um, the sepulchre so that uh, it'll verify, basically, that Jesus rose from the dead rather than proving that he didn't. Um, he is not here. He is risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. This is verse 7. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run and bring to bring his disciples' word. And as they were to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came before him by the feet and worshipped him. Jesus said unto them, Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into um, that they go into Galilee, and there they shall see me. Um, and so then uh, in verse sixteen, then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appeared to them. So once again, we have the mountain motif. We've had um, the. Transfiguration was on a mountain, but also the last temptation was on a mountain. Then several times he's spoken on mountains, he's been on mountains, and the last uh, thing he says when he's going away is also on a mountain. So let's read that. Um, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But you can imagine um, doubt being mixed with apostleship. And one thing we didn't mention, um, that where Mark has the complete failure of the disciples, they have no faith over and over. Uh, Jesus, uh, I mean, um, Matthew changes this so that he tells them, you have little faith. And we will talk about the meaning of little faith at the end of the quarter when we talk about young Goodman Brown. But this oligopistos, um, it's in Q. Luke has it once at a parallel spot with Matthew. But the rest of the time it's Matthew. And this was not a Greek word. Um, you, this was coined, um, I guess, by Q. Um, as... A translation of a Hebrew phrase, uh, small of faith, uh, mika amen, um, small of faith. And uh, it means that you have some faith, it's just inadequate. And so this mixture of worship and doubting, uh, rather than complete failure, that it's not quite a complete success on the part of the disciples. And Jesus came and spake unto them, and saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So, uh, here's this uh, command that as you go, 
you should te- and it's a participle they're going therefore teach all nations so the idea is that wherever you go you're to teach people about Jesus and to uh, bring them into his way of life until the end of the universe when he returns.